Hello, welcome to Residential Spread. My name is Corey Gergen, and I am here with uh, Josh Cohen. Josh, how are you? I'm de-densifying the classroom, Corey, with, with every every passing day. <laughs> uh, we love to hear it. Um, and we're here with Alex Edwards. Alex, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Um, it is finally not 102 degrees in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm very, very happy about that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's cooling off a little bit here, too. Um, uh, still pretty humid, though. Um, Molly, Molly Slavin is also here. How are you? I'm doing well. I am. Um, I brought out my Emily Oster books to prepare for this episode. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I burned them a very long time ago. So. Uh, as I recall, we had like a very serious discussion about whether you should put them in one of those free libraries or whether you should dispose of them. I felt like that was unethical. Um, yes. Oh, I was going to say it's a it's a that's a real ethical decision. Um, <laughs> you can't just leave those things lying around. I didn't no. burn them. That was a little too dramatic. I did recycle them, though. It's, <laughs> it's like the one ring. Um, and uh, also with us is Eric Lewis. Eric, how are you? I'm good. I'm just excited we're all here. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a full crew today. So um, listeners, uh, keep. I hope you can keep us straight. Um, uh, what a weird thing to say. Uh, on residential spread, uh, we talk about colleges and the coronavirus. We analyze the decisions schools are making in response to the pandemic, investigate how the existing structures of academia affect those decisions, and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during the pandemic as members of the precariat. Okay, and now that I'm done laughing at, I hope you can keep us straight, <laughs> I will carry on with the episode introduction. On September 15th, Emily Oster announced and launched the COVID-19 School Data Hub. In a Substack piece timed to the launch, she calls this the next phase of her team's project of running a close-to-real-time dashboard on COVID and schools. Next phase and close-to-real-time dashboard are her words. <laughs> on the same day, the New York Times ran a largely positive feature on both Oster and the Data Hub. The subhead on that piece, quote, the hub could eventually help measure the pandemic's broad impact on children and the education system itself, close quote. Quite a tall order. <laughs> we have talked plenty about Oster, her dashboard, and the way she uses the concept of data. In fact, just last week, we declared her a part of our own Legion of Doom. So how can we refuse the call when our archenemy acts? <laughs> so, <laughs> so has Oster learned her lesson after 18 months of jumping to conclusions, or is she making the same mistakes? Before we can answer that question, we have to do a temperature check. A temperature check is our recurring segment where we discuss a number or a statistic that sheds light onto our particular topic of the day. So today's number for our temperature check is zero. Zero is the number of degrees in public health, medicine, nursing, or any other health-related field that Emily Oster currently um, currently holds, despite the fact she is um, uh, positioning herself as an oracle of the pandemic. She is a professor of economics who has been refused tenure at one university. Oracle of the pandemic is clearly going to be her memoir title, right? Holy oh, my shit. God. Anyway, I just oh want to God. say, get her ass, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> really, 
I really hate Emily Otto. <laughs> I want, I want to know why, like, I want to know if her publicist, if the budget for her publicist comes out of the university budget. Oh, that's a great question. It's probably research funding. Maybe, possibly. You don't just show up in the New York Times with your fucking like, you know, it, whatever. It, it that it's the clearly there are the hallmarks, right, of someone who who has a whole team of people behind her making sure that we all have to fucking hear about her all the time. Yeah, um, multiple. This is the second time that she's been written up in the Times, um, just in the past year. Alex, you once told me that about, like, people in Hollywood, like, if Hollywood stars seem to come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, it means that they're, like, tied to somebody else. Even if, like, their parents aren't actors, their parents are, like, interior designers for the actors or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think here it's relevant to mention that Emily Oster's parents were both famous eco- economists. Economists? Yeah. Economists. Yep. That's how you say that word. Um, and she was the subject of a book that her parents co-wrote when she was two. Oh, that's two. right, right, that's right, yeah. Um, and this is just straight from Wikipedia. When she was two years old, Oster's parents noticed that she talked to herself in her crib after they left her room, which I'm just going to say is a thing babies do, not <laughs> um, They placed a tape recorder in her room in order to find out what she was saying and passed the tape onto a linguist and psychologist they were friends with. Analysis of Oster's speech showed that her language was much more complex when she was alone than when she was interacting oh, with adults. Fuck off. Oh my god! This led to her being the subject of a series of academic papers, which were collectively published as a compendium in 1989, titled "Narratives from the Crib." Big, <laughs> this is big, big Margot Tenenbaum energy, right? It oh really god. is. Or yeah. um, um, no, no, who's the um Gone Girl? Rosalind well, yeah, Pike I was about to ask. Is that the Emily Oster like story? (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's get into the data hub, which um, gathers um, all of the data that um, she's been collating. I think like like, gathering is not the right word because she's not she's not she's not making data. She's taking data that states are collecting um, and putting them into like. So is this different then from – because previously she was inviting schools to submit data. Yes. So I think at some point she transitioned from that. You're right. Yeah. When she first launched her her hub – not hub. Dashboard. uh, Dashboard, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when she when she first launched her dashboard, that's what it was. It was like individual schools and states could submit. I think this is just full state data. Okay, uh, is how I understand it because okay. there's only 31 states in this, whereas the dashboard um, had data had incomplete data from states where like a private school might send their data or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even some of even some of the states that have data, it doesn't mean that there's any relevant data, really. Yes. Like, so if you look at this, it's it's mostly just a map of what counties are in person, hybrid, and virtual over the course of August 2020 to May 2021, and you know it's color coded. But if you actually look at, like, if you pick a state, like you look at Alabama. And then 
it doesn't actually have their COVID-19 data. It just has their learning model data. So literally all it is is which counties in Alabama were in-person, hybrid, or virtual by month over those, you know, nine months or whatever. And then at some point later, she's going to get to claims about learning loss and about how it's correlated to these different learning uh, modes. But it's very incomplete. Even the, the earlier data hub, uh, the dashboard, I should say, last year, there was more granular data than it looks like is here. Yeah, I'm right. I'm glad you made that point, Josh, because as I was reading the Substack press release or whatever you want to call it, it just <laughs> the 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 vibe I got from it was over the past 18 months, there has been a pandemic of schools not being in person. Mm-hmm. And I want us to trace what that is. And then every yeah. once in a while, there will be a reference to like, oh, there's this thing called the Delta variant. Like it seemed like this is her hobby horse. I shouldn't be surprised, I guess. But just the the immediate focus on learning modality and nothing else was just yeah. very striking. Well, so I'm looking at, like, I just pulled up Texas, um, and when you click into the state of Texas, you then are taken to a page that says um, public data sources for Texas. You have the learning model data, and then you have COVID-19 case data and masking policy data. Um, And then you download, like, a CSV, um, which opens in Microsoft Excel, and the co- the case data is is wildly incomplete for Texas. Um, some schools don't have any numbers. Um, the only uh, things that are like filled out pretty consistently across the the whole spreadsheet is cumulative cases in students and cumulative cases in staff. But even those aren't complete. Um, and there's no indication of there's no indication in the excel spreadsheet of where i guess it came from um although i guess it's the texas department of state health services um but there's nowhere like i can't go check this against anything yeah yeah i I think maybe on the website of the data hub itself there are um there's sourcing but yeah you're right those those um those files you download then just become like data divorced of anything. And yeah, each state gathers this information differently. Each school system gathers this data differently. Right. Um, and yeah, putting it all um, on this map of the United States, which this website does um, definitely like flattens a lot of those complexities. I Yeah, I guess I'm not sure. Like, what is this? I, so to go back to the, the, um, New York Times thing that that Eric read out at the top of the show. Um, The Times says the hub could eventually help measure the pandemic's broad impact on children and the education system itself. But I don't see how that could possibly be happening. I mean, I think that that word eventually maybe is like doing a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) Look, if I if I set up a grill on the street and I put a tarp above it 
then I can release a press release that says this will eventually be a thriving restaurant that will bring this community <laughs> endless joy. And and really, why should I wait until I have walls and servers and a supply chain figured out? All I just need is is some semblance of a thing, and then I can just talk about eventually how great that thing is going to be. Yeah, you're I, right. You're right. I think I, I I think that's that's part of it. Alex, can I, I I guess are you asking like how can this data be used responsibly to answer those questions, or are you asking like how is this data actually going to be used to produce answers to these questions? Because I can answer the second question, but not the first one. Yes. I mean, so I think maybe that's, I, I think I'm asking maybe both questions, recognizing <laughs> that they're separate questions, right? Yeah. Um, there's a difference about like, what, what will she do with the data versus what could responsibly be done with the data? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, let's get into what she's going to, so, I mean, given now, it's almost silly to talk about what data is here because it's so little, like, there's just not, there's not a lot of information here at all. Um other than those like schools though there's uh, thousand schools <laughs> that's a lot of schools to be fair so what we have is like this this incomplete map that shows us that a lot of counties were in person and then there were pockets of problematic schools that were either hybrid or virtual. And we know that they're problematic because instead of being a pleasing, cool blue color, they are bright orange and bright red. Right, and just just as a note to the 56,000, there's what, like 130 something thousand K through 12 schools in the US? So Uh-oh, Josh, now let's not get into how we make fractions again, because we've already been over this with <laughs> Georgia Tech College of Science. <laughs> you're right you're right fractions you know that denominator it doesn't matter if you have any big flashy numerator and you're good to go <laughs> exactly 30 great number 30 states out of 50 states a little bit less of a great number yeah yeah for 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 what it's worth um in the 2017 2018 academic year there were 130,930 k-12 schools in the u.s so uh less than half are represented here to do to do a little quick fractioning. Watch out! You're going to go straight to the top of the class in the College of Sciences. Absolutely, don't laugh at that joke. No one laughs. No one, no Sorry, one I was muted. Of... We're all we're all we're all being good about muting this week. No, I was, I was trying to figure out a way to incorporate the fact that Corey started life as a math major, but I couldn't like quite get there. <laughs> Which is true. I didn't make that up. Yeah, in life, I was born that way. I was, I was in in my crib. I was doing, I was doing algebra. <laughs> no one was there. Uh, yeah, when you were alone, not when you were in the room with <laughs> right. other people. Right. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was like figuring out right triangles and and things like that. Uh, fortunately, no one's found the book about me yet. Anyways, well, this is a short episode. Let's get back to the point, which is the difference between. What Emily, um, our best friend Emily, is going to do with this data versus what's the responsible thing to do with the data? Corey, you had an answer to one of those questions. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the responsible thing is is hard and, and challenging and involves a lot of, like, important questions about what the data does and doesn't. And, in fact, uh, next week, Matt Bode is going to be on, and he's going to talk a little bit about this uh, with some data that he's compiling in Georgia. 
Um, Emily Oster is not doing that. Uh, she is taking these data sets and just like mashing them up against other data sets. Uh, so in her Substack piece, she goes to Virginia. Uh, why would she go to Virginia? Because Virginia released um, the data on its like statewide standardized test scores. Um, and so she took that data uh, from those test scores, which were down last year compared to 2018, 2019. Um, comparing student outcomes uh, to those from the 2018, 2019 school year, um, we might expect to see, this is Oster, we might expect to see similar levels of student proficiency. However, the data reflect lower levels of student proficiency, proficiency in 2020 to 21 across subject areas. Why we might expect that, I don't know, but that's what she says. Um, the preliminary results shown in a graph with, again, that helpful color coding where you know in-person is good because it's blue um, and hybrid and remote are bad because they're like bright, uh, warm colors, uh, suggest that those these learning losses were largest in areas which were predominantly virtual, parenthetical. Notably, these locations also started at a lower proficiency level, end quote. So what is, <laughs> what's wrong with what she's doing here? It's well, <laughs> a short episode, so just let's list some of the things that are wrong with what she's doing here. <laughs> I mean, we talked about the word eventually doing a lot of work. I feel like yeah. parentheses are doing a lot of work, right? Well, yeah. Also, I mean, yes, I, you asked the question even as you, you read it out, right? Like, why would we assume that, that testing proficiency, and I'm even going to set aside for a second the fact that standardized testing is racist and ableist yes. and a, a completely ineffective and pointless marker of so-called student learning. Um, yes. I'm going to set that aside. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we assume that proficiency levels would be steady from a quote unquote normal year to a year in which more than half a million Americans died and it, like everything was in chaos and everyone felt the effects of this like horrific global event. It, what? Right. Yeah. Oh, well, this is what bothers me about economists, like always, is because there's they treat all economists that I don't like <laughs> treat all of the numbers as though they are divorced from any kind of social reality. Right. So like. Like, God, I don't know. Maybe the fucking world is burning down around us and the students didn't have time to give a shit about your pointless fucking tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if we assume these tests are like a meaningful measure of the value of schooling, um, you know, a, a correlation there doesn't equal causation to like use a like Internet trope at this point. But, yeah, it's it's a <laughs> yeah. huge leap to assume it's it's the hybrid learning and not the like high high case counts and everything else that comes with a global pandemic. Well, especially because some districts switched like mid-year like mm -hmm. this this graph doesn't even make any sense. Like it's just it's just such a huge oversimplification of so many different factors. It's 
to be so useless. But the whole point of it is just to show this dramatic drop um, in, you know, the year of the pandemic versus the last year yeah. before the pandemic. And, and Josh, actually, in fact, to, to just um, reinforce what you're saying, if you go to the page for Virginia on the school data hub, the slider will let you sort of see the difference, um, what counties are in what learning mode um, month by month. And the, the only two months that stay the same consecutively are September 2020 and October 2020. And then mm-hmm. after that, literally every month, many of these state, these counties, excuse me, in the state of Virginia are changing their modality um, in all kinds of different ways. Right. So, uh, like, I mean, essentially what Emily Oster's done is proven that this like constant sort of um, instability has driven down testing scores, which, yeah, yes. I mean, that yep. makes sense. Yeah. As Cornelia Lambert said, like, sure, students benefit from structure, but structure is not switching between modalities back and forth because of this totemic obsession with in-person instruction. It's right. making a plan that is safe and workable and sticking to it. Uh, to- but go ahead, totally. Josh. Yeah, totally. Well, I also just, I don't even understand the figure one, the comparison graph, that's like the first graph in this section, that's like pre-pandemic percentage of students achieving math and reading proficiency, and then it's by pandemic learning model. But then in the note to the second graph, it's like, note, all learning was in person during pre-pandemic years. So why is the first graph that's like pre-pandemic, like here's the percentage of of in-person and hybrid and virtual proficiency but then it's like who was doing that there was very limited virtual and hybrid classes i mean there was some in k through 12 but very 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 little virtual and hybrid classes pre-pandemic so what is that even like what's the sample size like it doesn't make any sense like the in-person sample size would be like 95 or 99 or whatever it is if you're talking about every student in the state of virginia before the pandemic and in fact the note to the second figure says that it was all. So it doesn't even, I don't even understand what that's supposed to capture. I think that what that is capturing is, so all of this instruction is in person, but she is grouping the districts by their predominant uh, pandemic learning model. So the virtual bar on that bar graph, that is in-person instruction in the school districts that later during the pandemic went virtual. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's for Virginia. I'm not looking at that figure. It's yeah. just for Virginia. It's, yeah. it's just Virginia okay. because they it, published their testing scores. Well, then also, I mean, that, e- that makes even less sense because it's not fair to group a district by the, the dominant mode that they use. Because, again, I'm flipping through this timeline. I'm going month by month on the slider bar and literally every county is changing every month. Yeah. And and I mean, like, you know, virtual and then hybrid and then virtual again and then in person by March of 2021. Like, it's just, there's just no consistency whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a mess. I, I, I think also on just a pure statistics level in terms of looking at numbers and making sense of them. Like, so in that parenthetical statement, she notes 
the locations that went hybrid, that went predominantly hybrid, however much percentage of the time she's using to determine that, those locations started at a lower proficiency level, and they also experienced the greatest quote-unquote learning loss during the pandemic. That, to me, just highlights the fact that we have very little to go on in terms of determining that the learning modality is the primary reason for that. Like, it could just be these are districts that are already disadvantaged in some way. Therefore, maybe mm -hmm. virtual instruction didn't work as well because there were fewer resources. Like, that has less to do with virtual instruction than with inequality in U.S. education. Yeah, and that's that's where that parenthetical is doing so much work about how some of these districts were already uh, I want to get her language right. Notably, these locations also started at a lower proficiency level. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're already going long. Molly, did you want to talk about the funding for this data hub? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is like a consistent Emily Oster problem. But um, I think, you know, we should definitely be suspicious of all of it. But it's worth noting, I think, that the funding comes from Emergent Ventures at the Mercatus Center, um, who is, I believe, Peter Thiel, no. um, the, the PayPal guy. Um, That's right. Although he, I mean, you can refer to him, I guess, in other ways, too. But for our sake, the, the, the PayPal guy. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, so Facebook, mm -hmm. um, Arnold Ventures, and I'm not sure what that is, um, and Brown University. Um, Chan, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has been especially, um, um, they've been um, involved in pushing charter schools over traditional publics. So I think that that's a really scary way this data could get used. Mm -hmm. um, school vouchers, increased use of charters, those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, follow the money. It's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't I don't trust Peter Thiel either. Uh, the other oh, no. the Arnold, that's that's a it's a, a venture capitalist who I don't know a lot about um, named Arnold. Uh, so these it's just They're, he's probably bad, too. Right. I mean, these are very, very oh, there's no good are, venture capitalists. Right. Like. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, any 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 venture money that goes into education that isn't like just like here public school systems here is some money for you uh i'm deeply suspicious of uh but yeah zuckerberg and teal in particular um very uh, scary i'm I'm, yeah. I'm 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 scared of also scary and this may be by a, a way to conclude also scary is uh emily oster's other noted plans for this data and this is from the new york times article quote in the future, researchers may be able to answer if and how school closures affected high school graduation rates, crime, obesity, and mental health needs, she noted. That's not a direct quote, but it is attributed to her directly. Um, it's a paraphrase of, of, of things that she said. Um, and just uh, a couple of days ago, she tweeted about a study about BMI, body, uh, body mass index increases uh, supposedly uh, during the pandemic, she she quote, she tweeted that she wished she could map that onto this data. So uh, this this is not just going to solve education; it's also going to solve uh, obesity and crime. Uh, yeah, her those graphs that she had that she tweeted um, seemed to show that um, virtual learning made students more obese. Yeah, like that's what that that sort of was the 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 goal of that. Um, and, and just like data on learning loss, 
data on the supposed BMI is pretty much junk science and bullshit. So it makes sense that it's getting – and and honestly, crime data is generally bullshit too. So it makes sense this is all getting lumped together. It it, it makes perfect sense. And actually – and I – we have to end, but I will just very briefly – do you know where – how – Adolf Quetelet, uh, I always say his name wrong, uh, who invented like the concept that we now call body mass index. Do you know like why he decided to uh, divide weight times uh, by height? Was it for Nazi reasons? Uh, no, it, racist South I mean, a lot of his ideas uh, like were the like foregrounding for a lot of racist ideas. Um uh, including like the positive school of criminology, in fact. Uh, but no, it was just it was data that existed uh, in Scotland and somewhere else. There were population data on weight and height. So he just like here were some numbers. He threw them together and he came up with this percentage uh, or this ratio, which he very clearly said this is a population data point, not an individual health data point. Which of course is not how anyone used it by like the middle of the 20th century. Um, but much like Emily Oster, he just like took two data sets that already existed and kind of mashed them together. And we all decided that what he found was very meaningful. What a robust field of academic inquiry. <laughs> Listen, I was just about to say, you guys, I'm calling it on numbers. We're done with numbers. <laughs> academics cannot be trusted with numbers. Economists certainly cannot be trusted with numbers. And I just think that we should all press pause on the concept of numbers until we get this shit figured out. Yeah. Any other last thoughts? <laughs> uh, I do love, Corey, the basically timeline that you put forward of how an Oster publicity oh. dump works. <laughs> Yeah, we, we did the standard we get, arc. Yeah, we didn't get to that. Um, yeah. Uh, do we want to run through that? I would kind of love to. At least okay. I think it's a, a useful explanatory concept. Oh, uh, yeah, so you this, can recite it if you like, or I can sure. say Sure. <laughs> so there's, there's always like a big provocative claim, right? Uh, think about headlines like um, schools aren't super spreaders or treat your unvaccinated child like a vaccinated adult, right? Mm-hmm. Um And then her writing includes a couple of caveats about the limits on the data. And, you know, she's only gathering this data because the federal government isn't and it's imperfect, blah, 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 blah. Then people online point out the leaps that she's making in logic and sort of the ways that she's making claims that she can't support. And then she points to those caveats as a way to, like, retreat. And yet the article stays up and she continues to um, get glowing features in the New York Times and money from venture capitalists. And as we noted in um, one of our past episodes, she then also gets cited. Those those big provocative headlines get cited as um, like alongside actual rigorous scientific research as though they're equal. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we get the endless round of think pieces about how liberals can't quit the lockdown um, and mm-hmm. all the links to the the supposed data that shows that, like, it's safe now um, all comes from these Emily Oster pieces. Yeah, it's and a I really think, handy little grift. Yes. And I, I believe that um, uh, uh, the state of Florida used her data to support its ban on mass mm-hmm. mandates in in K-12 schools. Mm-hmm. 
it is. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's a handy little grift. Um, yeah. Uh, well, uh, we've gone very long on this bonus episode, um, but thank you all for sticking with us. And uh, until next time, uh, hire a publicist. Figure out if you can do it with your research money. <laughs> yes. Yes. Use your use your research funding on a publicist. <laughs> or 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 get Mark Zuckerberg to hire a publicist for you. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Ha, <laughs>